Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Massachusetts. His father was a 1976 Olympic alternate. He wrestled and graduated from Brown University with a degree in business, economics, and organizational behavior and management. He was a world champion and competed for the U.S. four times as an Olympian and won bronze twice. After retiring from competition after the 2004 Olympics, he returned in 2012 to coach the U.S. Olympic team in London. He has coached many notable students, including the first person ever to win judo gold for the U.S., Kayla Harrison. He owns and operates Fujimats.com and Fujisports.com, is also the founder of Pedro's Judo Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts. The movie about his life, Fury on the Mat, is very well known. He's married, has four children. Please welcome my guest today, Jimmy Pedro. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing terrific, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And Kind of what we like to do with all my guests, I want to jump back in and, and go back to the very beginning. I want to know what, what led to that first interest, that first spark that started your martial arts journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite comical because uh, there was no spark. It was literally thrown into the fire. You know, my, <laughs> my dad was a judo instructor, ran a dojo. So ever since the age of two, I was uh, running around a mat. And uh, at the age of five, I didn't really have a choice. He said, hey. You're doing judo. Whether you like it or not, get on the mat. Go. So <laughs> Nice. And I had no choice, and I didn't look back ever since. Well, I, now, I've had a few with kind of a similar beginning. So then I asked them, once you got to that age where you could have made that decision and said, I don't want to do this anymore, what was it about it? What made you want to stick with it at that point? I don't know if I had ever got to that age. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad still no. says you can't quit, huh? <laughs> yeah, literally. My dad was like, no, I don't care. You're doing judo. It's good for you. It's good for your health. If you're not going to play other sports, you're going to do judo. Of course, I went and I tried playing you know, baseball and, and football and mm -hmm. all kinds of other sports, and I loved them, had fun doing it. Uh, and then, of course, one year when I was, I think I was 14 years of age, I lost the national championships that year. And my dad said, see, that's because you're playing all those other stupid sports. You're going to do judo now and dedicate yourself to judo so that doesn't happen again. And so <laughs> there went the other sports that I love to play. And uh, lo and behold, I became a full-time judoka. Nice. Oh, you did do wrestling, though. Yeah. I did, yeah. So uh, what, what age did that start? Uh, in high school. I okay. started my sophomore year in high school. I started with wrestling just because it was, you know, it was a school sport. Mm -hmm. Judo obviously was not a school sport. And I knew that wrestling would be good for my judo career. It would help me, you know, with my mat work and help me with takedowns and things like that, make it tougher wrestling. So I did wrestle for three years in high school and, you know, I had a really good, successful high school career. I won the um, state championships two times in Massachusetts. Nice. I won the New, Eng New England championships and I ended up getting recruited to, you know, to either go to Brown University or Harvard University. And I ended up choosing Brown and um, was a, a four-year starter for them. Wow. You know, became captain of the team. I won the EIWAs uh, my junior year, qualified for NCAAs in wrestling, 
uh, all while, you know, still competing on the world circuit for judo, kind of trying to do both sports and, um, you know, had a really good college career as well. That's impressive for not starting till your 10th grade year of high school. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. So I got to ask then, I'm curious when you were competing in wrestling or when you were doing judo, how hard was it like in your mind to not throw a judo move in there or a wrestling move when you're doing judo? Was that something hard to get over or was it pretty easy to keep, separate the two while you were doing them? I mean, since I had done judo my entire life, I mean, I knew that sport inside and out. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really, you know, obviously I, I incorporated a lot of my judo into my wrestling. And back then, the rules of judo and wrestling were, were more similar than they are today. Okay. You know, today you can't grab the legs in the sport of judo or do anything below the belt. And back when I was competing, you could do fire ins, carries, leg picks, and you could use your hands to grab legs. So, you know, it was a lot easier to do both sports back then. And I think both sports helped me, you know, succeed in the other. Nice. You said, you, of course, you trained with your dad. He ran his own school. What was he like as an instructor? What are some things that stood out for some of those classes? And do you think he was harder on you because you were his son when you were in class? So the second question, 100%. Uh, the, <laughs> okay. the, the road for me was significantly harder than anybody else. Nice. My dad was somebody who's he's, he's very black and white. There's no gray. There's no favoritism. In fact, if there's anything, he'll go the other other degree to prove that there is no favoritism. It's always going to be harder, more difficult for his family to do anything in the school or to achieve, you know, the next rank was, was significantly difficult, more difficult for me than other students. Okay. But my dad was a disciplinarian. He was, think of, uh, you know, a military general or, you know, drill sergeant. That pretty much epitomizes my dad, you know, break people down train them like dogs, make them warriors, you know, keep beating them down until they're tough enough where they either quit or they survive and they become champions. And the ones that stayed in our program and you spoke about Anne Maria DeMars and mm -hmm. her daughter, Rhonda, you know, you think of Kayla, um, Travis, the ones that survived our program ended up going on and becoming champions because that's, that's the way my dad trained everybody. Nice. So do you remember your first ever judo competition? I do. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. It was at my dad's academy, Massasoit Judo School in Peabody, Mass. I was six years old and um, I was scared to death. I remember like sitting on my mother's lap and like holding my mom and saying I didn't want to compete and I was scared and crying and wow. didn't want to do it and told my dad, no, I'm not competing. Uh, my very first match was against this little yellow belt. You know, I was a white belt. He was a yellow belt. African-American kid, uh, seven years old, and I'm six, and I'm thinking he's so much older, so much bigger, and telling my dad, I don't want to compete. And he just said, get out there. We get home. You'll deal with me. And I said, <laughs> you know, with the seven-year-old yellow belt, I want to get home. My dad's going to kick the crap on me. I'm going to go with the seven-year-old seven -year yellow belt. You know, so nice. I, I ended up winning uh, my first two contests in that tournament, and then uh, my dad said, okay, that's good enough, pulled me out and said, you're good. You know, So I ended up taking third place because there, there were some kids in the division that were nine years old and, you know, just way too mature for me at, yeah. at that age to, to compete against at the age of six. So I ended up finishing third and only having two matches, but he was satisfied that I got out there and I, I fought, you know? Okay. So, so then what made you want to, did you enjoy competition right away or was it the next few times? Was it the same type of thing? You didn't want to do it or was after that first one, were you, were you over that hump and it was pretty easy? So probably from the age of six till about the age of like, I'd say 10 or 11, mm -hmm. every single judo contest I ever went to, I was nervous as heck, butterflies in my stomach followed my dad around like I wouldn't let him out of my sight I would like walk behind him two three steps everywhere in the venue wherever he went I went 
until I competed and my competition was over, I was nervous and I was like, you know, I don't say afraid to compete, but I was scared of the outcome, you know, okay. and uh, I was a nervous wreck as a little kid competing. Now, mind you, I didn't lose a contest in judo, I think, until I was 11 years old. Wow. So I just had a lot of like, I felt a lot of pressure to perform because my dad was such a hard coach. He was, you know, such a demanding father and coach that I felt like if I had lost a judo contest, I would let him down and he was going to yell at me and I didn't want my dad yelling at me. So I fought like hell not to lose. So, okay. <laughs> so it didn't happen. And we went to every single local tournament, every regional tournament, every nationals every year. And from the age of six, when I started till I was 11, I didn't lose a match. Wow. That's really cool. So, so one thing I've never asked any of my guests that are done, I always, you know, I, I got to quit assuming that all my listeners understand every martial art and know everything about that. So what does it take to win a, a judo match? Is it, you know, it, just explain a little bit. Is it a point thing? How does it work exactly to win a judo match? As a young judoka under the age of 13, uh, that's when chokes are, chokes are allowed at the age of 13 and older. Okay. Uh, to win a judo contest, requires you to take your opponent from a standing position and throw them onto their back. If you throw them like directly from the feet to their back with good force, it's called an epone and the match is over when you score epone. So you can throw your opponent as a kid onto their back. A combination of two throws that aren't directly to the back, but that are onto the side or, you know, back exposure, but not directly onto the back or not with enough force, you'll get a half a point. And two half a points will end the match with a full point. So throws is one way to win. And the other way to win as a kid is by pinning your opponent onto their back. You know, similar to wrestling outside the guard of jujitsu. So you have to pass the legs to, to secure a pin in judo. Uh, even if they have one of your ankles, it's not considered a pin. You have to have both of your legs past the guard position, largely onto their back, holding them down with control for a period of 20 seconds. And that also wins the contest. Cool. Yeah. I, I don't know why I've never asked that question. I need to remember that when I have guests on from different styles to, to sure. explain some of that stuff for my listeners. So that's a very, Makes very sense. yeah, very good explanation. So at what age did you start teaching? What age, what belt? So, I mean, as a, as a young kid, you know, at a, at a professional school, and my dad ran a, a pretty professional school when I was a kid, I was always asked to help other kids, you mm -hmm. know, go show them how to do this move or go show them how to fall or go show them how to do these basic moves. So I, I was brought up at a school where I was helping others all the time, but I didn't open my own academy and start teaching my own school until after the 1996 Olympics. So at the age of 26 is when I opened my academy and started teaching. Prior to that, you know, I had done seminars and clinics and mm -hmm. gone places and, and to make money to support my career, you know, from the age of like 18 to till 26. But I really didn't become a full-time school owner until that time. Okay. So think back to then to now, what do you think has changed the most about your teaching style over the years? Well, I mean, first and foremost, as a competitor, when you first opened your academy, your goal is to like produce athletes, produce champions. You want to train people really, really hard. You want to like make your students the best they can be. And you want to go to competitions, right? And, and mm -hmm. win at events. That's, that's kind of why everybody gets into coaching. But as I've matured and as I've, uh, what I see as when you focus only on competition, you're alienating about 90% of the population that wants to do judo that can benefit from doing judo. Yep. So now my academy is made up of kids that are two, three years old, all the way up to guys that are in their seventies, right? And my school went from always having about 
50 or 60 people in it who are all competitors. And I could never figure out why I can't get by past 50 or 60 people at my school because we have a really good judo school. We, we train really, really hard and we teach the best of technique. Why are you only have 50 or 60 people? It's because people can't handle that training. That's right. too intense. It's too hard. So when I started having recreational programs and I started like exposing the community to the benefits of judo outside of competition, right? Gaining confidence, learning how to fall safely, learning how to protect yourself, learning how to stand up to bullies, you know, setting goals, being disciplined, not necessarily training hard, but having fun learning the skills of judo and staying in the sport to better yourself as a person to be more fit, to be, you know, uh, more confident. I then shortened my training schedule, divided everything by uh, by rank. You know, we have a basic kids class. We have an intermediate kids class. We have an advanced kids class. And then I have a competition class. So I have, you know, four or five different levels for kids and the same for adults. And when I did that and I professionalized my school and I made it less about competition and more about changing people's lives and making it more of a community, we now have over 300 people wow. at my academy training just judo. We don't teach karate. We don't teach jujitsu. They can take that at another place, you know, in another business that's run beside mine. Mm-hmm. But my judo academy as a standalone has over 300 actively participating members. That's impressive. Very cool. Nice. So go back a little and, and talk about your black belt test. What what was that like? And was that testing? Was it just in front of your dad? Was there other you know higher ranks involved or just a little bit about your black belt test? So my dad was a little bit old school. You know, I mean, of course, there's, there's requirements for black belt, you know, whether it's time and grade, uh, prove yourself in competition, know a certain amount of techniques, have, you know, certain knowledge in the sport. Uh, my dad always believed that a black belt at our school should be somebody that could go out there against any adult and defend themselves well and handle themselves in an appropriate way. In addition, in competition, when that black belt steps on the mat, he's no longer is losing to any brown belts or anybody below them. They're consistently beating all the ranks below them and can hold their own against other black belts. And that was his way of deciding who is ready for black belt. I didn't have a a test where I stood in front of people and demonstrated my techniques. I proved myself in competition. So I earned my black belt when I won the high school national championships in the sport of judo. So I had won the national championships many, many times up until I was like 17 years old. At 17, I was still a brown belt, but most of the kids that I was competing against at the high school national championships, they were already awarded their black belt. And so when I won the high school national championships and beat all of the other black belts in my division, my dad said, okay, it's time. You're, you know, you can be promoted to black belt. And that's, that's how I got my black belt was by beating other black belts. Okay. When I was a brown belt. Nice. And proving it through competition. Okay. And then at what age did the Olympics start becoming a reality? When did you start thinking maybe this is something, is that something you thought about from a young age because of your dad or not until you got a little older and started doing well in competition? When did the Olympics kind of get on your radar? So I think the seed was planted when I was young. You know, the seed was planted when I was maybe like, when my dad was an Olympic alternate in 76, I remember watching the Olympics on television with him and kind of seeing a little glimmer in his eye about how excited he was to see Team USA compete in the Olympic Games and how it was like, you know, it was, he led me to believe that it was like one of the most honorable things you could do for your country, you know, outside of, you know, go to war and join the military and and fight for your freedom. 
Mm-hmm. The second best thing would be represent your country, you know, in sport at the Olympics. So that seed was planted young, but I don't think I really got an understanding that I was capable of doing that until I was, I think I was around 16 years old. I competed in my first U.S. senior national championships. And at that event, I, I competed against a guy by the name of Kevin Asano, who was the number one athlete in the United States at the time. He was a bronze medalist at the world championships. He ended up going on and taking a silver medal in the Olympic Games in 1988. And I competed against him in the 1987 Senior National Championships. I was 16, and he was probably 25. And I ended up going the full distance with him. I lost the match by a a referee's decision. So there was, after the end of the contest, he had no score. I had no score. You know, I gave him the best match I could. It was a close contest. I lost by decision. And I think at that point in time is when I realized, like, man, that was pretty close. I'm only 16. You know, and he went on to win an Olympic medal the year later, uh, and it was a silver medal. So that's when I said, man, I'm good enough to compete with these guys. And it was then that I started going internationally around the world to, to train and get better and, you know, learn from other people and train against, you know, higher level athletes all the time. And I just took my training to a whole nother level when I was in high school and then college and ended up making my first Olympic team in 1992 when I was 21 years old. Nice. And I know it's different with every sport. So when you actually went to the Olympic qualifiers and made it, how far was that before the actual Olympics? So after you got ready for it, you won. And then how much training did you get to do before you left for the Olympics? So in the sport of judo back then, you just had to be the best athlete of the United States. You had to win the Olympic trials. Back in 92, they had the Olympic trials in January of 1992. Okay. So I won I won the trials in, in January, and then the Olympics were in July. So I had a good, you know, six, seven months to prepare for the Olympics, which, you know, constituted of getting on a plane and going to Paris and competing in the Grand Slam in Paris, then doing a camp there, then staying for the Austrian Open and doing a camp in Austria the next weekend, and then following that up with the German competition and the World Masters in Germany, followed by another training camp, then go to Hungary and compete in Hungary the following weekend. Like I spent like six weeks in Europe straight from February till like mid-March, come back, compete in the national championships here in April, go to Japan and, and prepare in Japan for three or four weeks, you know, through May, compete in Italy with a couple of tournaments in Italy in between camps. So like we had a really aggressive schedule getting ready for mm-hmm. for that, for the Barcelona Olympics. Like we competed everywhere and, and really put a hard schedule together to get ready. Wow. And what was that, uh, that very first Olympic experience like? What are some things that you remember about that? It was disappointing for one moment, right? And that's to win an Olympic gold medal and – when you dedicate, you know, from the age of six until you're 21, that's 15 years of your life missing birthday parties, vacations, like, you know, friends and family activities. You know, you're spending a lot of time alone in a foreign land, getting yourself out of bed, going to practice, coming back, working out in the afternoon, weightlifting or, or, or running, getting a nap, going back to another judo practice and doing it over and over and over again for, for a lot of years to get ready for that moment. And when you go to the Olympics and you, you don't perform to the best of your ability, well, I mean, I performed to the best I could, I think. I just didn't win. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you don't succeed and you don't reach your goal, it's very disheartening. And to me, it was disappointing and somewhat depressing, especially when the gold medalist was a guy from Brazil. And it's somebody that I had never lost to in my life. You know, the silver medalist was a guy from Hungary 
who I think I had beat him twice. He beat me twice in my career. And then the bronze medalist was a guy from Cuba. And I never lost to him in my, my career ever either. So when you look at the medalists, and you're not one of them, but you're very capable of being one of them, it was disappointing. And at that Olympics, I won two matches, and then I lost my third match to a guy from Japan. You know, really tough, hard-fought match, but, you know, I came out on the on the short end of it and, and lost. So, tough matchup. Was that not doing the best that you knew you could? Was that um, kind of what drove you to go back and go for it again four years later? Absolutely. When you don't reach your goal, you don't succeed, right? If, if you don't try again, you're definitely not going to reach it. That's 100%, right? right? 100% that you won't get there. So for me, it was, yeah, hey, didn't do it this time, but hey, let's rededicate ourselves and let's try to get back and make the most of the next opportunity. As an actual athlete, you've gone four times. Now, is, uh, what's what's the record for judo? How many times, you know, what's the most someone has gone? I, I should have looked that up, but I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I don't, I'm not sure as far okay. as like worldwide what the record is. Mm-hmm. I think that in the United States, there's been a few four-time Olympians. Okay. I can, I know that, wow. you know, I know that Jason Morris was a four-time Olympian. I know that Brian Olson was a four-time Olympian. I'm not sure how many others made four games. I don't think there was very many more though. Okay. Now, obviously you, you ended up doing better each time, <laughs> you know, you, you, cause I think it was at uh, 96. Was it, was it fifth place? If I remember. Correctly. So 96, 96 was Atlanta and I actually won a bronze medal. Bronze medal. Okay. Sorry. sorry. I stepped on the podium. I won a bronze so that was amazing. It was in the States, you know, all my friends, family, everybody was there. It was in, you know, it was an American crowd. So, you know, the whole crowd was behind me and it was, it was really electric to do that in the, in the United States. The next Olympics, I was actually the world champion in 99 going into the 2000 Olympic games. So I was the sort of odds on favorite to win an Olympic gold. And in Sydney, I had a disappointing, I had a disappointing uh, Olympics. Okay. Um, I ended up finishing fifth. I lost my very first match of the games. I had the number five guy in the world from Korea who ended up beating me by a, a penalty. It was like a small minor infraction for gripping the gi the wrong way, and that's how he won. Then I came back and won five straight, and then I lost in the bronze medal contest, which was disappointing because, you know, but still fifth in the world or, you know, yeah. losing for the bronze at the Olympics is nothing. It's not. A, it's still a good performance for most, Heck but yeah. I was devastated. <laughs> I was devastated by it because I really thought I was going to win the gold that day. Which made me come back, you know, to the last games, which was in Athens, Greece. And I was 33 years old, going on 34 and kind of definitely at the tail end of my career. But mm-hmm. salvaged it one last time and, and finished on the podium, you know, uh, for my second time, which for me, it was amazing nice. to finish on a positive note. Any part of you consider trying to come back four more years or did you know no, you were done no, after that? No. <laughs> that was it. I had I had three kids at home already. You know, I had a I had a three year old, a two year old, and a one year old at home, and it was time to you know move on with life and, and figure yeah. stuff. Actually, at that time they were actually older. They were seven, five, and four, or something like that. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now you don't want to try like the Michael Phelps thing. I huh? just kind of no. keep going and keep going, but. Okay, nice. So then when did, uh, after that, did they approach you about coaching the team or was that something you wanted to do? Yeah, so after after 2004, Ed Liddy, who was the high performance director at USA Judo, said, hey, we've got a concept, we've got an idea, we'd like you to come on board with coaching. And, you know, not as the head national coach, but we have a program called the U23 program, which is 
you know, anybody under the age of 23, we want you to identify the talent. We want you to work with and develop that talent and take them around the world and, and teach them and show them what it takes to win. And I said, done. I'd love to do it. What's nice. the budget? Oh, we've got $36,000 a year for all of the athletes and you Wow! to go around the world and train and coach. I was thinking to myself, <laughs> okay, we got to be really creative here, right? So <laughs> wow. I, I wrote, I actually identified 20 athletes and I wrote all of them a personal letter that I wrote saying, you know, you've been identified by USA Judo and, and as uh, somebody that has Olympic potential, we'd love to invite you to be part of this team. I got a sponsor to donate, you know, a sweatsuit for all the kids to help them out with some judo geese so that they, you know, get something for joining the team. And I said, the commitment is you guys are going to go to all the tournaments that I've I've put on this list. And we're all, we're going to be able to give you a stipend of, I think at the time it was like $500 each for every international trip we go on, you, you know. So it was like a budget of like 1500 per person is all I had to give because I had 20 athletes, right? So mm-hmm. We did some creative math, and these kids felt excited and honored to have been selected and chosen as you know Olympic potential, and they all bought in, and they all did all the training that was necessary and showed up at the camps and gave it their all. And lo and behold, you know, a lot of them ended up going on to becoming our Olympic superstars, nice. you know, and, you know, it was, it was work done by a lot of people. You know, I'm not the only one that gets mm-hmm. the credit, but, you know, certainly – leading them, guiding them, directing them, helping them, you know, turn them into some amazing athletes. And that's where Travis was part of that program. Travis Stevens, Ronda Rousey was part of that program. Kayla Harrison was part of the program. Marty Malloy, who won an Olympic medal. And Nick Del Popolo, who, you know, went to a couple of Olympic games and finished seventh, was part of the program. And we had a lot of other talented kids that, you know, although they didn't make an Olympic team or win an Olympic medal, they progressed and we really put United States Judo on the map as like a, you know, a strong powerhouse in the sport. Nice. You know, so, and a lot of those kids are still doing Judo full-time today, which I'm very proud of. You have, you know, Harry St. Ledger, Gary St. Ledger. They're both part of like mixed martial arts programs or running professional Judos today, you know, Judo dojos today. And they, they were part of that program as well. And a lot of these people stayed in Judo and are now given back to the sport, which is nice. Is that program still going? It is not. No, that was so, so that was something I did for like four years from 2005 to 2009. Okay. And then in 2009, I took over the head coaching job at, at USA Judo and I led the Olympic team to the 2012 Olympics and then the 2016 Olympics as well. Okay. So what was, uh, what's more nerve wracking, uh, competing yourself in the Olympics or doing it as a coach and watching your students compete? Watching your students compete <laughs> is much more nerve wracking. When you're an athlete, you can control the destiny. You directly can affect what happens at the end of the match, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is once the competition begins, you're no longer nervous. You no longer have anxiety. You get it all out while you're competing. And once you're in the flow of competing, you just compete. You're not nervous anymore. As a coach, you're constantly nervous. <laughs> you're all – every match, you're nervous. You don't know what the outcome is going to be throughout the entire contest. You have nervous energy because – you're hoping that they execute. You're hoping they do what you've taught them or they'll make an adjustments out there that you're telling them, but you still don't directly control that outcome. That's why it's so much more nerve wracking. So how cool was it then being there as a coach and watching the first person ever from the U S win gold with Kayla? That was, it was, that was a surreal moment. That was almost as if it, it didn't feel like it was really happening. 
Do you know what I mean? Like you, mm-hmm. you, you just couldn't believe it to be true. It was something that had been talked about in the United States ever since I was a kid of when are we going to have our first Olympic gold medalist? We've never had anybody become Olympic champion. Like, you know, that's something that was always put out there as someone has to do it. Someone's going to do it. And then when you're actually a part of that reality, it doesn't seem like it, it's true. You know what I mean? It was just, it was a magical, terrific, uh, amazing time. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember that's, I, I, I never, I never got to watch, I, I, I think I only watched a dude on the Olympics, maybe three or four times in my life. And that was one of the times I watched. I just happened to flip on and I'm like, oh my God, she's going to win. You know, I was, like, I was jump, <laughs> jumping up and down and cheering and stuff. And I was like, that's so cool. So yeah, I mean, just even just as a fan from back home watching, it was so cool. I can't imagine being there and seeing it in person. So that's really, really cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was awesome. So talk a little bit about uh, Fuji mats and Fuji sports and kind of how that thing started. Yeah, crazy. Interesting. So in after my athletic career, I went and worked for a company, Monster.com, and I was heading up their Olympic activation division. I was the manager of their Olympic sponsorship because Monster sponsored uh, the U.S. Olympic team in 2002 and 2004. Okay. And that was my job. And as a result of that job, I learned a lot about marketing, sponsorships, online activations, sweepstakes, promotions. You know, a lo- It helped me immensely in my career that I do today. But I used that knowledge to then um, go on and work for a company in the mat, mat business. They wanted a face to their brand. And so I was hired by a company to be a, originally a sales rep and a spokesperson. I did that job for about eight or nine years, and I helped lead and guide and direct that company into a massive international brand. While I was there, I had continued to ask the owner of the company to have future ownership, you know, in, in a meaningful way, you know, and it was something that really wasn't on the table. And so all along, there was a brand called Fuji owned by Leah Hatashta. And I was always a spokesperson for that brand as well, because it's a judo gi company. And I, I represented their judo gis while I was an athlete. I did some business consulting with them on the side, and I helped grow uh, that company quite a bit while I was doing the mat business. And when I expressed my dissatisfaction in, in the current company I was working for, Leah at Fuji said, well, why don't you come over and work full time for me and work together with me and grow my brand? You've done an amazing job so far. I have full confidence in, in your ability to, to grow it even further. So that was back in 2014. And at that point, I became a full time employee of of uh, Hadashita Enterprises, which owns Fuji Sports. Okay. And they were just getting into BJJ at the time you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and that sort of thing. So I helped do the strategy, the marketing, the product development um, for Fuji. And we took it from where it was then to where it is today. And I would say today it's probably the number one selling brand in jiu-jitsu nice. um, in the world, at least if it's not in terms of like the brand itself, I'm certainly positive in the number of geese that we provide and sell worldwide to other companies. And it was about a year after that where my partners at the previous mat company came to me and said, hey, you know, we really would love to start a mat division with you as well. Could we do that under the Fuji brand name? And I said, sure, let's give it a try. So I took the two top guys from the other company. They created an alliance with me. We started the Fuji mat brand in 2015. And today I would say that, you know, in terms of the Tommy mat sales and expertise and knowledge in the mat space, Fuji mats is... None of the number one martial arts mat brand 
in the United States today. Both companies, I am owners of both companies. They're sort of my babies, you mm-hmm. know, that I've looked after for the last, you know, nine, 10 years. And uh, I'm super proud of what we've we've done and what we've become. You know, we hire most of the people that we hire are all martial artists. You know, they all live and live and breathe in the sports space. You know, they're judo players, athletes, they're all like individuals dedicated to a cause that love and live the passion of grappling and martial arts. Uh, and they work extremely hard. They're very intelligent. And everybody in the company is just good people. Like we were, we surround ourselves with really good people, you know, who have been taught responsibility, accountability. We have character. And, you know, everybody treats the customer like they should be treated. You know, you're not, you're not farmed off to a, an, you know, overseas sales rep or, or customer service rep. It's all done, you know, by, by Americans here in America. And uh, so it's just, I think it's a terrific brand that we've created and I'm super proud of it. That's awesome. And I will definitely put links out there for, for all that stuff too, because that's, that's really cool. And I support anything to do with martial arts. So that's awesome. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. So, talk a little bit about the the movie uh, Fury on the Mat. How did that come about? No, oh, it's funny. When I was working at Monster, uh, one of the guys there was the video editing guy. He put a, he put all the caricatures together for for Monster dot com and did a lot of like the media graphics and stuff. And he approached me and he said, "Hey, we should make a movie of your life." do you have any videotapes and stuff? And I laughed and I said, I have videotapes of myself since I was six years old, <laughs> you know, all the way to all the Olympics, like all homeschool, old video stuff. And so he said, would you mind bringing them in? I'll put them all on like, a, a, you know, discs and we'll go through it and let's put a story together. And he, he helped me script the whole thing. He helped me, um, you know, he interviewed me. He put all the sign, sound bites together. He did the video overlay of, of all of the stuff from competition and, Probably the biggest thing that most people don't know is that in order to show any Olympic footage in anything, mm-hmm. you have to have the rights to that footage. Right. And even though it's you competing, you don't own the rights. The Olympic Committee owns the mm-hmm. rights. So it cost me over $20,000 that I had to pay the Olympic Committee for the rights to put like seven minutes of footage of myself competing in my own film that I created. Wow. You know, and so the fury on the mat was, it's really my life story. It's my life's journey from six years old till I stepped on the final Olympic podium in Athens, Greece. Can people see that online? Is that streaming somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. It's still, I think it's on YouTube. I think people have uploaded it to YouTube. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. If I find that, I'll put a link for that one too. Cause I tried finding it. Like I looked on all the different streaming things. I never thought of looking on YouTube, I guess, but I will try to find it and, and put a link out there for that too. So what is some advice you would give someone who wants to get involved in martial arts for the first time in their life? They know nothing about it. And they're just wondering a couple tips. What sh- hey, what should I look for in a school? What should I look for in an instructor? Well, first of all, joining martial arts could possibly be the best thing that you've ever done for yourself or your child. I think if you find the right fit at the right school, it truly can change your life you know, forever. The skills and the lessons that you're going to learn about you know, being humble, being respectful, caring about other people, caring about yourself, challenging yourself every day, learning discipline learning how to overcome obstacles, set goals, you know, have setbacks, uh, you know, examine why you've, you're, you're not winning or why things aren't, aren't working and then how to overcome those. Like those life lessons are truly invaluable and they've made me the person that I am today and the business person that I am today. Mm-hmm. But finding it is important that you find the right fit 
you know, I wouldn't go to some place that is a belt factory where their goal is to take as much money from you as possible and put you on a fast track to, to becoming a black belt. You know, I really think you need to find the right martial art that fits your lifestyle, you know, and, and certainly judo is not for everybody, but jujitsu in the right academy can be for a young kid. I think judo is an excellent choice, you know, somewhere between the age of five years old and 25 years old is a good age to start judo. After that, it's a little bit tough of a sport <laughs> to, to do. And, you know, there are some some you know, taekwondo karate schools out there with really good instructors. Just find a place and, and be sure to ask the parents of the students that are in that place, you know, what this place is like and what do you like about it and what don't you like about it? Mm -hmm. You know, because I think it's important that you find the right fit. And certainly the instructor, somebody who's there, you know, who lives and breathes martial arts, who's always present at the school, somebody who cares about people. If you find that a dojo that has that, then you found a gem. Nice. I like that. All right. So you've had a lot of your students have had success switching from judo and moving into the, the MMA octagon, as, as I say, I guess. People like Kayla and Rhonda and Rick, they've had you know success in MMA. So I'm just curious, are, are you a fan of MMA? And is that something you ever thought about in, in your life, possibly stepping into the into the cage? So for me, it was something that I never considered because, you know, the UFC really didn't come around until like I was almost 30 years old, right? I think the first UFC was like 1996 or somewhere around there. Yep. I was I was in the prime of my judo career, focused on judo at the time. And back then, the UFC had no weight classes. <laughs> so <laughs> as a 150-pound guy, I knew I wasn't getting in a ring and winning any winning any titles in MMA. So <laughs> it wasn't something that I ever considered. When the UFC started having weight classes, then that's something that I would have considered. But I was at the tail end of a career 34 years old, you know, to, to become a professional MMA athlete and try to do it starting at the age of 34 is probably not a good career choice right. after you've, you know, sacrificed a good part of your life making next to no money in the sport of judo to try to do, do that in mixed martial arts didn't really make sense either. You know, and back then there wasn't that much money in MMA, right. not like it is today, yeah. you know, so it wasn't a good career move. And plus I had kids at home and the only way to really be successful is you have to be a full-time athlete. And right. that really wasn't in the cards. So, But I, I do like MMA. I'm surrounded by it. My business is surrounded by it. I think it gets a bad reputation, mm -hmm. you know, for being a, you know, I'll call it a knucklehead sport or, you know, people that have no class or no respect. It's quite the opposite. You know, a lot of the people that are at the highest level of mixed martial arts are very intelligent, smart humble people. They really are. Anything that they do on camera, most of the time, nine times out of 10, it's they're trying to be showmen. They're trying to get eyeballs on their pay-per-views. They want people to watch the fights. It's an act. It's a, you know, they're, they're playing a, they're playing a game, you know, and it's to, to get as many people as they can attracted to the fight that they're going to have next uh, and to create a persona for themselves. But in person, you know, I'm really good friends with a lot of them. A lot of them now because you know, I help build a lot of their gyms. I see a lot of them at a lot. I go to a lot of the fights, so I see a lot of them, or I know their agents. And it's it is a really good community of people that are highly skilled in what they do. And I have a lot of respect for for you know the dream that you're they're chasing because I once chased that same dream. Very cool. So in all your years then in, in, in judo, is there one philosophy you've learned that stands out that rises to the top of your list? You keep coming back to it. Yeah. Believe in yourself and never quit. Nice. I tell my athletes and I tell my children that 
if you don't believe in yourself, nobody will. And if you don't believe in yourself, you will never succeed. You will never win because you have to believe that nobody's better than you, that you can do anything. And if you don't believe that, then it won't happen. So you've got to convince yourself and believe that it is going to happen for you. It's just a matter of time. And along that way, as long as there's a never quit attitude and you keep clawing and chasing and grinding and fighting and learning and adjusting and adapting, you know, and the will to succeed is there and the belief in yourself is there, you can get there. Nice. All right. I got a few fun questions to, to wrap it up here. Who are three or four names, maybe you have five names. I've had guests do as many as eight, but <laughs> I, I usually say three or four names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Oh, we're talking about all martial arts here. Yeah, it's 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 your personal. I mean, I've had uh, oh, people put you know only the style they're in. I've had people you know people will do like a Bruce Lee or a Chuck Norris. You know, it's all 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 kind of depends on you. It's your it's your decision. Wow, it's tough. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, obviously, I I think I think Muhammad Ali has to be there. Nice as as the greatest showman and and boxer of all time, or at least certainly the most charismatic boxer of all time. Mm -hmm. So I think Muhammad Ali in boxing. You know, in, in mixed martial arts, you have Khabib Nurmagomedov, who's undefeated and went down as the only undefeated MMA fighter in, in UFC history. So I would put Khabib there as, you know, uh, one of the greatest champs in yes. MMA. In judo, you have to put, from the United States, you'd have, if you were picking an American, you'd have to put Kayla Harrison Definitely. as a two-time Olympic champion. You know, so she'd be my pick if there was an American, and especially if a female had to go up there, I'd say it would be <laughs> yeah. her. In wrestling, it would have to be Jordan Burroughs for the number of Olympic titles and world titles that Jordan has won as a wrestler. Okay. So uh, that would be my wrestling pick. Jiu-Jitsu is a tough one, you mm -hmm. know, because there's, been, there's a whole new generation of, of Jiu-Jitsu players out yeah. there. Obviously, if it's a no-gi, then I think you'd have to pick Gordon Ryan as the no-gi guy. Probably the gi guy, I'd have to go with Hodger Gracie nice. as a, a gi practitioner. And we're talking um, – Running out of, I'd say, you know, certainly Bruce Lee in, in, in Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. um, putting it on the map and making it famous, he would certainly have to be there. So Nice. That's an impressive Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I want to see I don't that. know how many names I covered, but I think, you, I think it's six or map. seven. That's pretty good. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. How about a favorite martial arts book? Oh, I don't have a favorite martial arts book. No. Um, okay. No. No. Okay. That's fine. Th this one, you might not have an answer for either. I mean, you, you kind of grew up in like the eighties and nineties, so maybe, but do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Were you ever a gamer? Uh, I never played, I never really played video games. Um, no, cause I traveled so mm -hmm. often and went overseas so much. Uh, I was I, the old school one. The first one that ever came out was that football game. That was just a little dash that went across the screen. I'm really showing my age, but <laughs> It was a little handheld thing that you could only play. It was like a. I remember it, that. It, it wasn't even animated, but it was. That oh. was one of my favorite. That and Tetris when I was a kid. Okay. You know, but hey. no, I never, I never played martial arts. Uh, okay, that's cool. I did the UFC. I did do UFC. Hang on, I did, I did. My kids got the uh, UFC one or when it first came out. They used to kick my ass in that. Okay, nice. <laughs> How about a favorite martial arts TV show? I laughed when I saw the Cobra Kai when uh, on the Netflix when it came out during uh, yeah 
I watched that whole series. I thought that was funny just because it, it had so many parallels back to the original Karate Kid. I love it. <laughs> I watch it with my daughter every time it comes That's out. That's great. So. <laughs> nice. That's good. How, how about a favorite martial arts movie? Boy, that's a tough one. Martial arts movie. The ones I had way back when were black and white. I don't even remember any of the names of them. I gotta go with the. I have to go with one of the Karate Kids because that was okay. that was my generation growing up. Yep. You know, hey, that, that's my that pick what, too. The first Karate Kid is my want. pick. Yeah, I, with Mr. Miyagi yep. for sure. Okay, yep. cool. And final question: Now, this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. Just a favorite movie fight scene. Is there any just fight scene that stands out? You're like, oh, that's it's so cool. I like the way they did that. It's one that jumps to the top. I think that I, I don't. I'm not good with names of movies or mm-hmm. names of um, uh, you know music and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's some something that I'm not my forte. But there was a scene that I really liked, and I forget what the movie was, but it was with Keanu Reeves, and it was you know maybe it was The Matrix or okay. something like that. But it was a really good fight scene that had some legitimate judo going on in it non bars and triangle chokes and things like that but i don't remember the movie that it was specifically okay. but i do remember seeing the scenes and i was impressed with the choreography and the legitimacy of the actual movements i was actually gonna ask you that has, has there been any movies you can think of that really portrayed judo realistically you know what's funny is years ago i think in the in the 70s and 80s is when judo was at its height and all the other martial arts really you know mma didn't exist mm-hmm. and, Karate wasn't what it was. It, it became that after the Karate Kid, I believe. But yep. prior to that, judo was always referenced. You know, Teddy Roosevelt did judo, mm-hmm. and there was judo scenes in movies, and there was references to you know, Gene LaBelle was in Hollywood, and there was always like judo scenes and references to Tomoe Nagis or you know a judo chop or whatever it was. There always was a reference to judo, but that's that's all disappeared today. Yeah, you know, even the Flintstone was tough. And it, <laughs> Well, hopefully, hopefully maybe it'll, it'll make a comeback. I mean, it'd be cool to start seeing that again. So I'd love to see, I mean, they surprised that's one thing they haven't done. Like as a, like a biography, like an actual Hollywood movie of Jiro Kano, like the guy who founded judo. I mean, that'd be kind of cool right. to see his life story on screen. It'd be awesome. Maybe, maybe we'll see that in our, in our lifetime. Dare to dream. So, <laughs> well, is there anything that I maybe haven't asked you that you want to want to make sure to get out there? And like I said, I'll put links for all your stuff for your school website for Fuji Mats. Fuji, I'll put all that out there. But anything that maybe I, I didn't ask you that you want to make sure we talk about quick? No, I just loved how personal it was, and I think you've you covered a good gamut of my career, my my life, my family and my athletes. So well, I, I truly appreciate it. It's been, it's been so much fun chatting and, and hearing your story. And I, I can't wait to get the episode out towards the end of March. I'm about a month ahead right now. So <laughs> in recording, right, cool. awesome. yeah, yeah but I, I will get a hold of you when it, when it's coming out and stuff, but I, I truly appreciate your time and it, it's been a blast chatting. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.